It's the same old story. It's been a long day at the job, or maybe it's just starting to feel long, and you feel that urge to stretch your legs and get a little bit of a break. You walk down the street, or maybe you get behind the wheel of your car, and you feel the weight begin to lift. You walk through the doors, and the sound of the place starts to clear the air. You get a table, you order your drink, you listen to the sounds of the bar, and soak in the conversation. Welcome to the TNE Speakeasy with your hosts, Caleb and Eric. Listen in as they discuss the 1955 film Killer's Kiss. continuing our Kubrick series covering Killer's Kiss yeah the second in our Kubrick series and the one one of the ones that I've seen the least out of his movies besides uh, Fear and Desire I've only seen this one once previously um, is this one that you go back to very often or is it also kind of no I'm in the same boat in a weird way uh, I realized that after I finished watching it all today that I too have only watched it once all the way through prior to today so Mm. yeah also i think the first time i saw this movie would have been approximately 2009 2010 period Mm. and i can't i probably acquired it on dvd or something like that how did you watch it i watched this maybe two three years ago on a UK DVD. I bought a set with Killer's Kiss, um, The Killing in Paths of Glory. And there's kind of a funny note I actually wanted to mention on this DVD. Because um, okay. they all come in these individual little thin cases. And the one for Killer's Kiss up at the top corner says, a J. Lee Thompson film. And I was like, oh, J. Lee Thompson. I didn't realize he was a producer. I didn't realize that he worked with uh, Stanley Kubrick. I'm kind of a fan of his loosely because of Planet of the Apes and um, his association with Charles Bronson. So I was like, oh, cool. And I, I went to look it up. Turns out he didn't work on the film at all. No connection. I think it was just a screw up on the <laughs> the DVD company's part. Wow. But... <laughs> I consider this movie, as far as on digital media or on media, as it's, it's one of the best special features ever. And what I mean is... Um, at some point when I started collecting Criterion more seriously, um, you know, I was aware of the killing and I was like, yeah, I want to get these Kubricks, of course, on, on, on Criterion, the ones that are available. So finally I got the killing one year to add to my collection. And I was like, all right, that's cool. I had no idea that in the special features for the killing Criterion disc, one of the special features is the entire Killer's Kiss. I had no idea until oh, I was wow. going through the menus. And then when I saw that, I was like, no freaking way. The whole movie is a special feature. And it, of course, gets the Criterion you know, touch. Oh, so it's even restored? And I thought, how do they not advertise that? Yeah, 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 yeah. 
And I'm like, how is that not advertised? Like when I ordered it, I had no idea that I was getting two movies for the price of one. And so that's why I consider this movie one of the greatest special features I've ever, ever come across. Damn, I wish I knew that. I was considering picking up the Killing uh, Blu-ray for our review, but I was just going to wait until that review. So I... <laughs> oh, It is currently streaming on the Criterion channel as well. So at least that's another way to see the restored version. Oh, damn. Um, and, then it, and then... Yeah, maybe I'll just do that. It itself has its own special feature <laughs> of a oh. short little doc of a, of a reviewer um, reflecting on the significance of the movie. So, yeah... Ooh. That's a that's a good criteria to pick up. I gotta say, I just said a curiosity. Did they talk at all about the making of this movie? A little bit, a little bit. Yeah, because uh, I was looking on Wikipedia today, and I discovered that in 1984 they made uh, <laughs> there was a movie kind of based on the production of this called Strangers Kiss, which I watched today, and I probably shouldn't oh, have because it was really dull. But <laughs> oh, and funnily enough, stars a. Uh, Peter Coyote is uh, Stanley Kubrick, since we were talking about E.T. earlier. <laughs> Weird. Not the best casting. Did not uh, did not work, in my opinion. But Wait, so it was a documentary, or it was like a remake, or historical? Uh, it, it was, you know, like um, uh, The Disaster Artist? Uh-huh, yes. Where it's like the making of a movie. Oh, but... but, but it, it's essentially that. But it's a drama, though, like a historical... Yeah, drama. Yeah, but I don't... I don't know how much it was based on this, like the actual story. There was like a whole weird thing with like kind of the events of the movie mirroring real life, and oh, I see the two like actors falling in love, and like there was like that is weird criminal kind of boss. I don't know. It was not a good movie, but <laughs> but I watched it. <laughs> that is so weird. Oh, but um, I had in my notes. I thought one of the places we should start with this discussion is uh, film noir. Now, I was interested in film noir as a teenager. I, I was quite a big fan of Humphrey Bogart. And so I saw some of his movies and a couple random ones on TCM. But in my adult years, uh, I've basically not gone back to film noir at all. So I feel like this is a big kind of blind spot for me at this point. Um, is this something that you tend to, you know, just pick movies off the shelf or check out film noir movies just because they're film noir? Or um, I haven't really. I've always found them interesting, and I've always wanted to dive deeper into Bogart because I've only seen two or three of his movies, and of course Casablanca is one of them. And I've always wanted to watch more, and I've always had other movies of his on my watch list. It just we never get to it, or I never get to it. And and I always like the idea of what because you know I always remember those episodes of The Next Generation that were like film noir or other mm-hmm. more modern things that are. The homages to film noir, like even something like even something like uh, Who Framed Roger Rabbit, um, and so I've always wanted to see more actual, but I really haven't, to be honest. The only one has been semi recently uh, when Sean and I did a, uh, a somewhat lesser known um, film noir movie, uh, uh, Angel Face, starring Robert Mitchum. Um, oh. So that I actually saw, and even though it is a film noir from approximately 1953 or, or 54 or so, it doesn't. It is a film noir, but it doesn't. It has some of the tropes, but it doesn't have all the tropes that you expect. 
Um, so it is a noir, but it, it's it's a little bit off the beaten path. Um, mm. So, so but so that's about it though, as far as my recent experience of of, of seeing something like it. But um, but I'm still learning about the genre, uh, mm. and I see how this fits into that, even though I'm no expert either on film noir. Yeah, and I guess now that thinking about recent ones that I've seen actually since I've been going through all the Orson Welles movies I've seen a couple of those that I think count as film noir but but yeah I'm no expert too I wouldn't even really know how to define it necessarily (laughs) if put on the spot well I think one thing interesting about it when I was doing some research on the genre you know film enthusiasts and film critics debate on whether film noir is even a genre Hmm. um, because uh, I learned that the actual term film noir didn't come around till was it like the seventies or something? Oh, okay. Um, in other in other words, when these movies were actually being produced, nobody called them film noir because that wasn't a thing. Um, these movies, my understanding is they were called melodramas. That's it in their era. So that's all they are, or that's what they were thought of when they were actually being produced. It's just been. In retrospect, people notice similar tropes, group them together, and then someone coined the term film noir. And it's funny because I think I think Sean and I talked about this when we reviewed um, the French Connection, because I was I was saying, and it's not I wasn't the first person to think of this that the French Connection is almost like a neo noir. You know, it's it's obviously from, produced in the early seventies, and it's almost like a return to noir. But it's funny because. I'm calling it neo noir at the time when they were just inventing the term noir, uh, <laughs> so and it's kind of strange, but yeah, yeah. So I guess more of a move, movement in film rather than a like established genre, kind of like exploitation too. Like who knows what? Sometimes the definition of what exploitation really is is super vague. Yes, but as they say though, there's certain if you watch little docs on noir, there's certain tropes, and that's how you know or you know, because, well, it has this, this, and this. So, okay, I think this counts as a noir. Like, there's always a femme fatale, for instance. Um, and there is a femme fatale yeah. in this movie. Yeah, and some poor sap just kind of almost instantly falling in love and then getting pulled into this kind of crime circle. Yes. And a grimy like, look to it. When I watched it earlier today, and I was getting to the end of the movie, and I was just thinking, regardless of how convoluted you think the plot is or not... I was just all this shit <laughs> just because these guys and their desire for this woman. That's it. Like, that's it. Mm-hmm. There's no other reason for everyone to have all this strife and and drama and putting your life on the line and all this shit. <laughs> like, it's just because she exists and they mm-hmm. want her. That's <laughs> it. That's it. That's it. Mm-hmm. That's it. Yeah, and they're both kind of stuck in a position to just, like, observe her, like course the boss she's a dancer at his club and the fighter he just she's just right across his window so they're just like yeah just like leering after her for years <laughs> and, it, and i know it and it's so funny that that concept who who, who came with came up with that first you know like because it, it's been done you know even in like the Taylor Swift video you know the, the trope of just like the person being right there outside your window um yeah. <laughs> who, who came up with that first it's so crazy, you know, that they just live right across from each other. And 
Um, I don't know. Are we supposed to explain anything uh, about the movie? I mean, it centers around uh, all loose, I mean. <laughs> three main characters. The guy is like a, bo- a, a, a low-level boxer who's coming to the end of his career, really. Um, his his mostly uneventful career as a boxer. Um, then there's Silva, who, or, well, that's the actor's name, Silva. But um, there's the... What do you, you call him? The, did you call him the crime boss? He, he's kind of a... I mean, he's got his little stooges, and, you know, they seem like they're... Yeah, he's not really a crime boss, per se, but he's just a skeevy person. Yeah. Um, yeah. In New York, with his little operation that he runs. Um, and I'll just mention, like, I think you've seen this movie already, but just a few days ago, I finally watched um, Last Night in Soho. You saw that, right? Oh, yeah. There you go. Yeah. And there's a little, there's a little bit of tie-in with that and this. Yeah. Just a little bit. Just a little bit. Um, if you've seen that movie, I don't really want to spoil that movie either. But if you haven't seen it, but um, I'm talking to a listener, obviously. But <laughs> the character played by Mr. Silva, yeah, he's a little bit like Jack, aka Matt Smith, mm-hmm. in Last Night in Soho. But yeah, I have thoughts about that other movie, which we can talk about another time. <laughs> sure. But uh, but yeah, I definitely had that in my mind since I just saw that three days ago. A little little bit of crossover. Yeah, and I guess we could we could mention uh, yeah Frank Silvera, the only one coming back from Fear and Desire, and he's probably the standout actor in that movie. So it makes sense that certainly he'd be like the only holdover. Certainly. And I think he's I think he's relatively good in this. I mean. A couple scenes felt a little overwrought, but but still, I I liked him here. But uh, the lead actor, uh, I didn't think much of that guy. <laughs> He's all right. He was serviceable, and and he was better than any of the guys, any of the other guys in Fear and Desire. Yeah, and to be fair to him, I mean, like Fear and Desire, this one was also shot silent for most of it. Yeah. So maybe just sitting in a room reading your lines, maybe he just didn't know how to do that to put the right inflections in. It's hard to judge in that kind of situation. Yeah, that's one of the weakest points, I think, of the, this movie overall is the ADR and mm. just any of the sound, like the Foley, etc. Like all of it. It's very rudimentary overall. Um, mm-hmm. And it brings down some of the amazing visuals in the movie. Um, the poor ADR and poor sound Foley. Um, but the, the lead actor, the boxer, he, he reminds me of like a, like, like a, a James Con type actor, James Con. Um, mm-hmm. he's like your faux James Con or your James Con stand in. Uh, cause yeah. But I think he's serviceable. Yeah. There's like a certain electricity to James Conn where you're just waiting for him to kind of reach his, you know, kind of boiling point and give you something really exciting. This guy, he just felt like super vacant to me. Which I guess, to be fair, is kind of a Kubrick trope later. You're right. Some like the Barry Lyndon actor, like kind of empty vessel. You're right. Although there's reasons why we have that poor actor in uh, Barry Lyndon, but you're right still. <laughs> I guess we'll get to that, but 
And then also, if you were following along like we are, like if you were doing this chronological retrospective yourself on the Kubrick Library, as previously discussed with Fear and Desire, it'd be hard to tell if you were just going off that first movie that there's some potential genius in this filmmaker that we're watching. Like, you have to really stretch it to try to, you know, extract some some signs of genius and fear and desire. But in this one, it's a lot easier mm. to see flashes of potential genius. We're not there yet, obviously. But this one kind of makes more sense in the grand scheme of things, I think. Yeah. Yeah, if this was his first film, I feel like the DNA would be a lot lot closer than yeah some like fear and desire even though this one does maybe feel closer to fear and desire than some of his other films like again we still get the kind of over-reliance on narration going through and yes true but i still understand it as a cost-cutting technique yeah absolutely you know kind of like in a weird way it's like when you have something unfinished like i don't even want to i don't even want to say game of death Let's just go with classic Doctor Who, like something like Shada or something, or the old, mm. the old serials when they would just have like a narration for the the bits that you're missing, you know, when there's like some missing oh. stories from a serial. Yeah. So, in a cost cutting way, I could. That's how I kind of see this: is you know, the original movie was lost, and we were only able to recover two thirds of it. So we're just going to add this narration. To cover the parts that you missed, and that's kind of, and I, I, for some reason that that rationalizes it for me, because I understand he was on a limited budget, you know, you, you can't do yeah. what you want to do, but of course that also him being on a limited budget also added to some of the uniqueness factor of how this movie was shot and where it was shot, which is kind of mm. cool because we talk about that a lot, especially with famous directors, when you get into their fa- their early works. And you like the, before they were who they were. It's interesting to see how the famous directors did the most with what they had. You know how they got over their minuscule budgets, their micro budgets when they're first coming up, and and so it forces them to do things a certain kind of way. And so some of this movie was for them. It's not all bad because because of the nature of the low budgetness, we have some interesting set pieces and locations that are used yeah and i think it's interesting that this is another independent film by kubrick just uh funded by a family friend Mm -hmm. i don't really think people think of him much as starting out as an independent filmmaker at least i didn't really before we started this retrospective right well i mean i just didn't know it until i knew it yeah that's fair and he's got his own film company Mm -hmm. yeah the minotaur which i was like oh minotaur that's an interesting name did they make any other movies nope (laughs) it is interesting (laughs) But it's also a little bit like, you know, that's how Linklater did it, you know, just paying for it himself and just, you know, doing his thing Mm -hmm. until someone gave him, finally gave him some money to actually make something. Yeah, like you were saying, we definitely get some cool, like, guerrilla filmmaking with all the stuff on the streets. And I'm not sure, this is New York, but I'm not sure, like, if necessarily all of it's shot. I guess it would have all been shot in New York, but... I think it is. It feels like very kind of lots of varied kind of uh, settings that they film in, and all filming in, like on location. Yeah, yeah, but it is pretty much which I feel like a lot of stuff would have been 
set bound back back at this time, but sorry. <laughs> well, no, but things were set bound in the big budget movies. Um, yep. At this time, uh, but see, okay, and I don't know where they shot like the the parts that appear to be studio, you know, like the like the apartments or whatever. But mm-hmm. but the the stuff that's on the streets and on the rooftops and around the buildings, all that stuff, that stuff is all shot in in Manhattan. Well, it's all shot in the same area of Manhattan, actually. Um, and then there's other bits that are shot in Brooklyn. Um, and then and that's it. I mean, that's pretty much where all the exterior stuff is done. Um, what's funny is that the exterior yeah. stuff... If, you, if Like I said, it's all actually concentrated in the same area in Manhattan and sort of also is the Brooklyn stuff. So in reality, all the outdoor stuff, they only cover cover an area of maybe three or four city blocks in a way. Do you know what I mean? Like you don't have to travel far to get from like these locations. Uh, they're all in the vicinity. All the Manhattan stuff is all in and around the Times Square area. Even the train station, that's the old Penn Station um, that they tore down in the 60s and replaced with a piece of crap that exists today. Um, well, all, all that stuff, it's all, it's all next to Times Square. It's all right there. It, it, everything's a couple blocks from, from the other thing, like the theater and everything. Or not the theater, but the, the dance hall. It's all in the same location. Yeah, and some of the shots around that area I thought were super cool. Like, there's a scene where Gloria's, like, crossing the street. And something about that shot I just thought looked... It painted such a cool picture of that time period. So I feel like I don't see a lot of movies. Absolutely fantastic. Has a little bit of a Hitchcockian vibe to it, the way it's shot. Mm -hmm. Um, I thought it was interesting seeing Times Square, this version of it. Mm Mm-hmm. Considering the version that we saw when we watched King Kong 2005 not too long ago. <laughs> oh, yeah, that, yeah. Didn't think about that. Well, now, <laughs> but it's weird how, I mean, obviously that's a, a modern depiction of 30s uh, Times Square, but it was weirdly a lot flashier and brighter <laughs> in the in the 30s, according to the Kong <laughs> movie. Where yeah. the 50s version, it, it I it has that drabbier look, which is, you know, New York goes both ways, depending on the movie. It can look really bright and, and like, amazing in the 50s, um, or it can look a little bit a little bit more worn in, like it does in this movie. And I guess that goes along with the film noir aspect of it. Yeah. But, yeah, uh, very grimy. There's that scene when uh, yeah. getting chased down that, like... I guess like abandoned tenement area or something abandoned like old buildings. Oh yeah, that's the Brooklyn parts. Yeah. Yeah, it's like man, this looks like it's almost like an apocalyptic city. Just everything's like shut down. I was like, damn. Yeah, it looks super cool. It's got a really like oppressive look to it. Whenever I see that kind of stuff, because you see locations like that in um, in like French Connection, and even in Live and Let Die, and there was this great Netflix series that got canceled by what's his name? Uh, I think I want to say he's an Australian guy. Um, there was a series that a lot of people never knew existed on Netflix called um, The Get Down. Hmm. Um, it was made by what's his name? The guy who did uh, Moulin Rouge and Great Gatsby. Oh, 
Baz Luhrmann. I just watched Moulin Rouge. Yes, uh. that guy. <laughs> well, I think the Get Down is about the be- one of the best things he ever made. And if you watch it, you can tell it's him if you know his style. <laughs> but I think it's reined in. Like, it's not all over the place. Psychedelic. It's kind of reined in. The Get Down's fantastic. It takes place in the late 70s uh, New York City. And they go to some locations that are also like those abandoned tenements, as you call them. Um, hmm. I, but I think those kind of locations are fascinating. The because fa- Because when I see it in any of these um, different movies I just named including this one. I always wonder what those areas look like when they're bustling. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. what, did, what did that part of Brooklyn look like when it was completely occupied with people? I always wonder. Um, ironically, it's also called the Soho District in uh, Brooklyn. But, yeah. Oh, <laughs> that's fair. It's interesting. Yeah, and in, like, there's a scene where the the what's it like his trainer gets killed in the alley too just the kind of way that they're like oh placed in the frame i thought that was some really beautiful composition absolutely absolutely you know it's kind of like when the droogies come up on like the homeless guy or something okay yeah i can see the comparison there yeah it's kind of like that when you think about it but um yeah and that whole bit Okay, it's kind of silly. I mean, you know, like a lot of the plot of this movie, like like the horrible bad timing for things. Um, <laughs> but I completely forgot. I don't know if I missed it the first time I watched it years ago. I completely forgot that even happened. That he was supposed to get his money, and then um, there was the whole mix-up. And then what happened to his trainer? Oh, and by the way, speaking yeah. of his trainer because I'm playing the movie and the first time we see his trainer on screen um, do you remember how it looked like the guys are working out in the gym the boxing gym oh yeah and he's just <laughs> on the phone and it looks like it's like rear projection it looks like rear projection doesn't it yeah like it a hundred percent but and I couldn't figure it out and I thought it was rear projection but do you know that it wasn't yeah we see it later he walks over to the phone i was like oh it's the same shot we see it later and it shocked the crap out of me because <laughs> then that proved that it wasn't and it's god it's so amazing it's god why don't they do stuff like that with lenses anymore um you could still find some movies in the 70s and stuff i think he used that same technique for that shot that we mentioned earlier with her crossing the street at a very similar kind of um something something like that placement to it but yeah, no, I actually quite like that scene where, yeah, he's supposed to be waiting for, the box is supposed to be waiting for her to go up and collect her money. Well, the trainer's going to come and give him his, and we have that little bit of a mix-up with those idiots who steal a scarf. For whatever reason, that scene actually made me feel like it was a little flash flash forward to uh, the killing. There's so many of those little incidents where things just slightly go wrong, and it's a big fuck-up. Silly builds throughout the movie. Well, see, I have to watch that again, too. Mm. But... You see, another thought I had, and I think I had it sometime a little bit after I originally saw this movie, and then, of course, it was top of my mind when I watched it today, because at some point after seeing this the first time, I was reflecting back on it, and see, seeing stuff like this just adds to 
what I think is the genius of, of the movie Pulp Fiction. Because, you see, when I first saw Pulp Fiction, I didn't understand all the tropes. And, I mean, well, there's tropes in the whole damn movie. But I'm, in particular, I'm talking about the tropes of, like, the boxer. Because when I saw Pulp Fiction in the 90s, I didn't understand how many boxer, quote-unquote, movies there were. Like, from, like, the 30s, 40s, and 50s. You know what I mean? I didn't realize how that had been done to death. So I didn't realize that the whole Bruce Willis, Fabian um, storyline was was like an homage in a way to that kind of thing. Um, so in a way, I think of like Killer's Kiss as being like, what if there was just a movie that was about Bruce Willis and Fabian? And, you know, it was just focused on them. And that was the whole movie. And like their trials and tribulations and oh, I forgot the watch and then da 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 and then by some weird crazy luck obviously he ends up in the pawn shop or whatever um, and that's that's what I think kill it's killer's kiss I mean it's not killer's kiss but I mean it's killer's kiss influenced but along with all those other boxer movies that I've never seen before and again it just enhances my genius of how Tarantino was able to take that and just fold it in with everything else going on in his movie. Yeah, I knew that one was going to come up. <laughs> Absolutely, I could see the DNA. <laughs> and that's my least favorite story in Pulp Fiction, by the way. <laughs> that's a side. Point. You know, it it was, it was when I used to watch the movie over and over again back in the day. But mm-hmm. yeah, I have a new appreciation for it, and uh, I have some exes who hate when I make fun of Fabian. Uh, oh, I've had some exes where I, where I where I replay. I go, "Hello, my name is Fabian." They hate that part because it's so not PC nowadays. Did not like her. I found her so obnoxious with her little. I hate when you use the mongoloid voice. <laughs> oh, I know. <laughs> Hello, oh, my name is Fabian. <laughs> <laughs> I never liked their relationship either. That's another reason why I don't really care for that one. I never felt like it played well. Joking about puncher in the belly. <laughs> but anyway. Yes, yes. With a little pot belly. Um, <laughs> I, I, yeah, I used to hate it, now I love it. I'm, I'm watching the scene where he's like chasing the guys down the sidewalk. I guess that's when he lost his scarf. Yeah, those it idiots. It so looks like Reservoir Dogs when they're running away from the the jewel heist oh yeah and they're like running down the street looks just like it yeah mr pink <laughs> yeah getting chased by the cops Mm-hmm. oh but what did you uh think of the way that kubrick shot the boxing sequence you mean like the actual fight yeah the actual fight where it turns into like i don't chaos. know other than <laughs> oh, wait say that again yeah where it turns into kind of like chaotic filming there's just complete chaos He's like laying under them at some point with the camera. Cause it's all handheld, I think, all that stuff. I'll have to see that part again because I remember more of the long shots of the fight. Because mm. um, they reminded me of the original Rocky movie and certain parts of some of the other Rocky movies where like, it's really, it's really done in a really small place. Like a really small arena with a really small audience, but if you film it a certain kind of way, it makes it seem a lot bigger than it is. And that was a big time technique they used in the original Rocky. Um, 
some for some of the scenes where it actually was a small fight, like like the literally the opening scene of the movie, Rocky the first one. Mm-hmm. But even when they filmed some of the key fights at the end of the movies, they would use trickery to make it seem like they were in a big arena when they weren't. And so that's I don't know, I that's all I could ever think about. <laughs> and unfortunately, I think they did an unintentional homage to that in Creed 2. Because I'm a big fan of Creed 1 and Creed 2. Hmm. Um, I don't know if you've seen them, but... Only the first one. Would, have you seen them? Uh, just the first one. Okay, well the second one is a great continuation of the story established in the first one. But spoiler for the worst thing about about the sequel, Creed 2. Um, so of course it culminates with the big fight at the end of Creed 2. And it's been built up like the whole movie, you know, that this is going to happen. And so it happens. And unlike Creed 1, and even the Rocky Balboa movie, they do the unthinkable. And the final fight is done on blue screen. What? Or green screen, whatever. With the audience? So the whole massive arena they're supposed to be in, and the audience... It's fucking green screen. And I could fucking tell. And this is what I'm calling my unintentional homage to like the classic Rocky movies where they tried to trick you to thinking they were in a bigger place than they were really in. Well, they did it in Creed 2. And I was like, why? Why? Is it, this is not like a low-budget movie. Not really. Right. And they did it well in the end of the first one. <sighs> it must have just been... They're like on a Robert Rodriguez, like... Like stadium or something, like CGI stadium. Um, oh, it's so disappointing. Maybe it's reshoots. That's the only thing I could think of that would make sense of that. Well, no, I mean, I, there's a reason why, but it's a little bit of a spoiler. Oh, okay, sure. Because because of where the location's supposed to be. In hell? <laughs> <laughs> It'd be kind of hard to find a location. That, but you know, if it would have been better if they could have found a location and then you know altered it with CG mm. to make it like what they want it to be, rather than just to pretty much rely on green and blue screen. This is completely off topic, kind of a weird point. Uh, so right before Davy goes up for his fight, he's like getting rubbed down by like a secondary of his trainer. Mm-hmm. And for whatever reason, the actor of me watching this scene right now just feel like he looks really uncomfortable as he's rubbing the other guy down. <laughs> I don't know why. I don't know why I'm even oh. mentioning it. But... I didn't think that, but I th- it was. I don't know if it's that scene or, but there's something close to that for his fight, where for a second I thought Kubrick was doing a director cameo, because one of his guys yeah. prepping him. I thought he looked like Kubrick for a second, but I was like, oh no, never mind. No. Just mildly resembles him. Yeah, maybe that was the guy I was thinking of. Because yeah, I can see a little resemblance with that guy. But oh, but did you? Did you skip over to that fight? Because I am, it, since it's such a big scene in the movie, I, I'm not sure how I feel about how Kubrick handled it. Like in, like it, there's a lot of great moments in it, but some of it just feels like kind of weird. <laughs> just something about it's not quite right. All right, I'll indulge you. I don't usually go back in time. <laughs> well, in the discussion, but there's no other way I'll be able to, because on memory I can't. I, have, I can't recall what you're talking about. Okay. I, well, I'm fast-forwarding, but I, I can already see what you're talking about. So let's see. So again, I think he's doing a lot of this 
I mean, it's not supposed to be a large venue anyway, but I still think it's... I think he's doing it for the reasons why handheld cam became really popular in the odds when they were doing certain, usually war movies, like The Heart Locker or mm. like um, like the Born Identity series or Quantum of Solace, where um, they're kind of disguising things by these like yeah. awkward handheld close-ups. Which, ironically, contrasts something else in the movie that comes later. Because this is all that frantic shooting, you know, I don't know if it's supposed to disguise that maybe our lead's not a true boxer, I don't know what the deal is. <laughs> but I was surprised, fast-forwarding to the climax, um, the iconic, I'm going to call it iconic fight in the mannequin um, factory, uh, when it's Silvera facing off with our lead, um, I was surprised at how little cutting there was that mm. as far as we can tell, it's practically all it, like, there's not stunt doubles. There's just, it's just the actors and, you know, mm. they're sort of facing off with the, uh, with the two weapons. Um, oh, there's the ax and the, uh, the poker. And I was surprised at how few cuts, cause I would have thought that's when the camera would have got crazy. And you would have had trouble discerning the action, but he just let it go. Like, go back and watch that scene, and there's surprisingly no cuts, which means the actors are just like improvising. Because I don't know how much of it was actually planned out. Yeah, like they're really. just improvising in real time, trying to make it look real. Um, so that that just surprised me. Because why would you do that? Like, linger to be able to see all the flaws. Yeah, think, thinking about it with the boxing, maybe, yeah, he was like, oh, it needs to be an actual, like, kind of fast-paced fight, and we can't have them really swinging at each other in the same way, so let's make it more chaotic, but because they're mainly fighting with the weapons in that kind of climax, maybe it was just easier to let it linger without them accidentally injuring each other, or looking really fake. But I do actually think that whole mannequin sequence is one of the most uh, kind of visually exciting bits like i think having the mannequins there is kind of a stroke of stroke of genius in a lot of ways yeah and and there's even one part that i don't even know if they planned it during that fight sequence which is um he goes in with the poker at one point and he stabs one of the mannequins mm. and when he pulls it back the mannequin is stuck on it and then silvera starts hacking away with the with the axe on the mannequin and <laughs> it doesn't really look like it was planned like it looks like it's like it's something that just happened in the moment and they just went with it. Yeah, I felt that I felt that similar way when he was running along the roof and he fell over. Either I came to help him up. But like, the first fall seemed like that was unintentional. Yeah. But the second one obviously uh seemed by design. Yeah. And that was also interesting, I thought an interesting choice to leave in that first one because, you know, Kubrick would be known to be like the crazy perfectionist, um, you know, with all his retakes and everything. So it's interesting that he, he keeps that one in. And again, it looks like it's the actual Silvera, not yeah, a stunt <laughs> performer who's just like, oh, and they add in the little ADR, like, oh, oh. oh, but it works for that guy. Sounds like 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 when Link gets hurt, like when you're playing Legend of Zelda, <laughs> it sounds like that. Yeah, but even though it's an accent, I think it works for him because obviously he's not out there doing this kind of stuff usually 
so he's not got, not got the kind of physique to <laughs> be leaping over those things. That's perfect. Those are pretty high, by the way. Those things, those roof dividers, or whatever they were. Mm-hmm, <laughs> mm-hmm. Oh, pretty dangerous stuff having your actors. <laughs> While Severa did do some other quasi-notable work, and he had a big career, uh, and, you know, he's considered one of the pioneers of, uh, you know, actors of color and all that kind of stuff. But he had a actually relatively surprisingly short life. Uh, do you happen to know uh, why he passed a little earlier than he should have? He passed at about the age of 55. Yeah, I did see how he died, yeah. <laughs> Pretty sad little... That's crazy. A accidental electrocution. That is wild. Yeah, he was just like repairing like a... Was it like a piece of his refrigerator or... No, 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 no. Garbage disposal. Yeah. Garbage. Yeah. I know it's a very American thing that they don't have so often in other countries. Yeah. But in the U.S., it's kind of standard, the, the garbage disposal. That's just crazy. Yeah, very sad. A uh, famous scene with a garbage disposal in the movie. Um, oh, my God. What is it called? Oh, it's a real gritty 80s movie. Um, oh, my Lord. I'll come back to you I, with that. I, I just I, I'll have to get the title out. I just can't sure. the name of it right now. Oh, one of one of the other notes that I had written in here is uh, interestingly, this is the last movie that Kubrick would do that would that's not based off a book. It's just an original script. Everything else, yeah, just based off something else. I'm not sure why that became like his standard thing to do, but well, I think well. So was Killers like name like based off a novel or Killers Kiss screenplay? Because I. I I mean, I'm sorry, The Killers. The Killers. Uh, oh, The Killing? Yeah, The Killing is based off a of book. The Killing? Yeah. Okay, because he does get writing credit on that, but I was, so I wasn't sure if he came up with it all by himself or not. Because, I mean, he would still write all his other movies even though they were adapted. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think it's because, in general, just because he was such an avid reader, and, and I think hmm. he was always looking for things... Um, that he would like to produce, you know, I think. Um, oh, yeah. And he's probably so visual, he'll be reading the story and then just see it in his head. Yeah, yeah. so I think that's kind of... Well, actually, you know, now that I think about 2001, actually, I, it, even though there, there was the book that came out the same year as the movie, it wasn't necessarily based on the book. They kind of developed that together and wrote it at the same time, so... But, but I think it still is considered an adaptation, even though it's not necessarily... <laughs> oh and just because you're still looking for that remember the mm -hmm. scene on the subway when he's Davy's reading a, a message from home and there's like that weird like southern voice that's coming through which is also terrible with ADR mm -hmm. for whatever reason that, that very silly uh, sounding voice just was making me think of Manila in uh, All Monsters Attack the American dub that's what had me giggling for that reason oh my goodness <laughs> Oh my, okay, I could see that. It took me oh. out of the scene. <laughs> but it wasn't the movie's fault. <laughs> but. Right, it is kind of like that, in a way. Yeah. Oh, but kind of interesting uh, note about Kubrick himself. You're mentioning how the retired boxer, or the boxer was like pretty close to like, the end of his career at 29. Yeah. But Kubrick was only like 27 when he made this. Right. So, pretty young guy still. and uh, Absolutely. Yeah, same age I am right now, actually. But, oh, really? <laughs> it's always weird to look at things like that. Like, oh. No, absolutely. Uh, 
Yeah, um, what's he call it? In, uh, I can't remember. Uh, you haven't seen it yet, have you? Um, Bo Berman's Inside? Nope. Uh, in one of his songs, the lyric is something to the effect of... Because in one of his songs, he... Oh, it's his song about turning 30 or something. Um, and because he's lamenting that he's about to turn 30 in real life. And he's, and he's like, when my grandfather was 27... Uh, he fought in Vietnam. When I was 27, I helped my mom make a birdhouse. Uh. <laughs> so yeah, that reminds me of that That's line. fair. <laughs> <laughs> oh, but just uh, reading through my notes again, since we were just talking about the mannequin scene a little while ago. I don't know if this is true, but I read this in IMDb trivia. They said that United Artists and the censors at the time were concerned about the nudity of the mannequins and I think there was some pressure about like what, what should we do about this scene because they already filmed in it it's got all this mannequin nudity and I was like what the hell like they're concerned about mannequins <laughs> like what a bizarre time period that like weirdo conservative overlord it's a good old haze code like a bunch of like children <laughs> no you're right about that but going back to I can't remember if, was this our previous discussion before we talked about the movie but how, you know, the conservative movement was like the big brother, you know, during the Hayes Code and all that. Religious mm-hmm. types and conservative types were the ones, you know, like dictating all the things you can't do. And boy, how the, the worm has turned um, in modern times <laughs> with it being like the liberal types and all the things you can't say um, or enact in current movies and I, I it's just the most bizarre thing how the how the script has flipped um from then to now yeah i'll still take now over the old uh their old way worrying about mannequins <laughs> but it, it seems so childish it is silly in retrospect it is silly yeah. however i've i always mention this there's something cool though because the haze code existed for all the filmmakers it's cool to see in classic movies of the of that era how often they tried to subvert it or or you know still get across what they want to get across within the bounds of the code. You know what I mean? Yeah, like a cool little meta kind of uh, reflection of the times. But yeah, and it's like a it's like a haiku or a sonnet, like if you're into writing, how they say. You know that's part of the exercise of trying to write a haiku or a sonnet is that you have a fixed format and you have to work in that format so you have to it, it kind of like inspires a different kind of creativity and i think that's what the haze code did unintentionally and again that's why i think that's what makes lolita so freaking brilliant i know it's a discussion for the day on this podcast yeah, we'll definitely get to that yeah because <laughs> it is peak like how do we subvert the haze code without breaking it um, but for those who have no idea what we're talking about, it's like the iconic in how many movies of, of this time where when the lovers fall in love on the train and as soon as they start to embrace or have that look in their eye, um, the train goes into the tunnel every single time. You know what I'm talking about? Yeah, because the silly sensors are like so dim. They don't even like put the connection together. Yeah. Or there'll be these characters hooking up in the city and then next shot is the morning and then there's like some guy with a jackhammer like on the sidewalk <laughs> or 
there's the one again where they they hook up and then we like cut to like a city fountain that that like starts to uh, erupt uh, with its uh, stream. I love that shit. It's hilarious. It's hilarious. It's funny. It is funny. <laughs> Couldn't imagine having to live under that time though to try to work around it, but it is funny in retrospect. And and also how young movie viewers who you know don't take the medium seriously, it just all blows right past them. Like the whole mm-hmm. train tunnel fountain business. I love it. I love it. <laughs> oh, but I, we, I guess we haven't talked much about the uh, the female character, Gloria. And I don't know if there is much to say. She's kind of like a blank slate. There really isn't much there at all. Except for that yeah. kind of interesting ballet scene. Well, at first I had nice things to say about her as I was taking mental notes. Because one thing I noticed about Kubrick's work as a whole is that you know how the ladies who are like the pinups or the models or magazine cover girls you know how it obviously changes through the decades like the kind of look they were going mm-hmm. for in the models like in stature and appearance and hair and all that kind of stuff if you kind of watch the Kubrick um, his whole body of work from the 50s to the 90s. He has a type of lady. That he's attracted to. Physically. And he's consistent. From the 50s to the 90s. Do you know what I mean? Like. Yeah their hair a little bit betrays. Their time period. But. Their hairstyle. But. I always noticed like. Some of the girls he picked. Like. Um, visually. For like Clockwork Orange or um, Doctor Strange Love, like they don't look like typical pretty girls of that of those respective eras, and it, it's because he has like a type, and that same type is represented, of course, like an eyes wide shut. So girls of similar stature and look, you can draw a through line from from her, Miss Chase, in this movie, to the ladies, including Nicole Kidman in Eyes Wide Shut. And he was pretty darn consistent in, like, the body type and and style that he chose. You know what I mean? Like, he didn't go with the times. He just liked what he liked, and, and he stuck with it all the way through. And I don't know. that That's something. Yeah, now that, now that you brought this up, I didn't really think <laughs> about it. But I, I guess this opens up a whole other can of worms for Kubrick, which is he has almost no interesting female characters across his movies. Most of them are just kind of either kind of dressing or like a just a piece of another character or i feel like even alita is like almost a cipher oh 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 oh! it's like the exact opposite of the bechdel test yeah his his females are the opposite of the bechdel test absolutely and that is a through line because they are as you say either window dressing or they simply exist to motivate the male character or characters Hmm. well actually there's one who's a bit of an exception, I think, a little bit. Um, and that's Shelley Long. I think she's the one who plays most against this Kubrick type off the top of my head. Oh, uh, Duvall? Um, <laughs> Shelley Duvall. I said Shelley Long. Uh, Shelley Duvall. Because, because she is a bit, she's a lot more independent in a way. I don't mean independent. I mean independent from sticking out in the crowd is what I mean. Amongst the other female characters throughout his movies. Yeah, she probably feels the most fleshed out now that I'm thinking about it. 
And there's only one other that I'd be runner-up for being a little bit more or having a little bit more substance, even though she is kind of two-dimensional when you get to, down to it. But that's the mother in Lolita. Oh, yeah, I forgot about that character. But but she she has more to work with than the typical Kubrick uh, female. Uh, mm-hmm. But she is two-dimensional at the same time. Uh, but you're but you're very right though. Overall, they're they're just window dressing or like like in um in uh in Barry Lyndon, what's her name? <laughs> I mean, what she says like famously, she says like ten words like in the whole movie, like in one yeah. scene. <laughs> she literally does not even speak, and her and and, and she she does play a part, you know, to motivate the character and to influence his life trajectory. Mm-hmm. But it's established just by her just being on screen and making an expression on her face, and that's it. That's it. Like, the expression is that she looks completely uninterested and aloof if you haven't seen the movie. <laughs> and, that, and that's all she does. And she fucks up Barry Lyndon's life. Yeah, I'm surprised. I guess because I, I've never watched all of his movies in sequence, it's never occurred to me that, yeah, he has, like, no female characters that have any sort of real individual individuality to them or any sort of real character but see they're all just kind of there <laughs> this is just my opinion but you know people are always again the people talk about the Bechdel test and people talk about how we need to have more inclusion whether it's female characters or people of other races or ethnicities okay this is just my opinion I don't care I don't care because I don't feel like the art is dependent on on the inclusion of anything. Either the art works or it doesn't work. And if this is just Kubrick's thing and he's just not interested in that, then like fine, so be it. Likewise, if there was someone who was a female writer or female movie producer and her thing or her perspective is just to deal with female characters and barely touch upon males fine i don't care either all i care about does the final product work and that's the thing though because a lot of the ones who just focus on the female characters and female goings-ons the movies just don't work on their own but if it did work then fine it's fine i mean i don't care i just care about the overall end result um and so yeah yeah the only one I can think of that immediately pops to my mind is the Babadook. I mean, there's a son there, but he's not really a real character. It's all focused on that one woman. Oh! And directed by a woman. Sean and I have done a few, actually. Um, hmm. uh, one that comes to mind, again, I mean, it's unexpected, but the Noir movie I, I mentioned earlier, Angel Face, which even has Robert Mitchum in the movie, and, and he's the most recognizable name in the movie, or face yet if you watch that movie um there's multiple female characters there's multiple male characters um and they're all in different stratas meaning there's rich people and there's servant class and there's like i guess people in the middle um and on all the stratas of characters in that one movie all the females are dominant uh, in some type of way, either in presence or speaking or significance, 
and all the men in the movie are subservient to the females and the females goings ons and and I talked a lot about that when we talked about that movie like like holy shit like see this is how you do it I mean that's how you do something woke because it's not really woke because you don't really think about it like you just think I'm just following along this movie it's only in hindsight that you go wait a second only the women in this movie had like meaty lines and and made decisions that really affected the plot the guys are just like getting pushed around in the plot I mean by whatever the ladies are thinking or deciding there's no strong male characters at all in that movie including Robert Mitchum so I'm just saying there's like things like that that people don't realize that that's a movie from 53 or whatever it is and it's all female driven but people act like it's never been done before and I bring that up a lot in mine and Sean's podcast because people always sit like like we got to do it now but there's movies I mean in every decade pretty much where it's like female driven mm-hmm. people just pretend like like it didn't exist or something I know that was one I, and there was another one we did but gone I think it comes more to like the major blockbusters or the movies that like most people see and for the longest time they were like oh all these blockbusters are so male dominated so they didn't really pay any attention or know about any of those kind of you're right you know, movies that didn't have that huge hard appeal and things like that and even the movies that worry about that kind of woke stuff are the bigger blockbusters where they're trying to reach out to the mass audience you I mean, it's kind of true about the big blockbusters, for sure. I mean, percentage-wise. But then they still either just completely gloss over the um, the Ripley's and the Sarah Connors of the world, or they talk about them, or what's-her-name from Halloween. Um, they either completely yeah. gloss over those like they never happened, or uh, they um, they speak of them like they're just these weird anomalies or something like they don't really register <laughs> like well i think they more say like yeah you can point out those two but where's the rest of the list there should you should have a dozen names and you've only got those couple and when it comes to horror i, I don't think there's ever been a problem of representation in horror and anyone who says that there has been i definitely feel like it is either lying or just doesn't know what they're talking about but oftentimes i feel like it's lying <laughs> but <laughs> now again if we should if we strict if we restrict ourselves to blockbusters only uh, there's no question. I mean, there's a slant in uh, gender identity. Um, but that's another conversation I don't really want to get into. I think there's a reason why the the ratio is way off in the blockbusters in particular. But I still think it's not fair, though. I still think you should judge all the movies as a whole, and I think you should expand your viewing to see all these other great movies where actually females do take the lead. Um, yeah, but most people... And sometimes they take it... They take it hard because I mean, again, there's a, there's a, of course, uh, Gone with the Wind, Wizard of Oz, like man, like these things oh, don't I, exist. As a millennial, so many people I knew were like, I don't watch anything pre the year I was born, or even pre like 2005, 2000, you know, 2000. And that's fine if you're a millennial, but I'm I'm talking about people who are my age and older who pretend like this shit doesn't exist. I think they probably feel a similar way. Oh, and the other one, me and Sean mentioned to you recently, um, Johnny Guitar. The damn movie's called Johnny Guitar. And 
the lead actor is Hayden or whatever his name is, the guy from The Killing. Um, mm-hmm. And it's billed as Johnny Guitar. But the movie is all about the two female leads going at each other. And they are the two alpha characters by far in the movie. But again, eh, nobody cares about this um, Western from 1953. Well, that's that's very true. (laughs) Nobody does. And it wouldn't have any reflection of what people are like, well, what about 2020? What does that Western have to do with that? Maybe times are better then. (laughs) And again, they're... They're more talking about the huge mainstream earners that everybody sees. So, which westerns were at a time, but not the same as you know something like Captain Marvel or something like that. But I mean, come on, it's nineteen fifty three western movie, and and the two females like dominate it completely. All the men in the movie are betas, like compared to the two females. Yeah, and it's always nice to see examples like that. You know, change things up. There's, there's tons. There is tons, especially for the Western genre. Who, uh, yeah, a lot of those kind of because that's fifties. You said right? Uh, yes, yes, yes. A lot of those more bland kind of. Well, maybe I shouldn't judge. I haven't seen a lot of those fifties. I've seen a lot of crappy kind of westerns, but maybe not the the great ones. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, back to uh, or maybe we're at the final thoughts for Killer's Kiss. I'm not sure if we have much more. Oh, I've got, I've got one thing actually. I was going to say, we've definitely talked much longer than the runtime of the movie, but go ahead. Oh, yeah, that is funny. It's only, a, it's like, six, was it 70 minutes or 60 minutes? It's like 67, I think. Wow. Yeah. Oh, but another little kind of precursor to uh, later Kubrick stuff. I like that we saw that kind of negative photography bit during that yep. sequence. Yep. I was like, oh, there we go. 100%. 100%. Yep. It's Kubrick, man. But I, I think that's, I think that's about it. Um, <laughs> that's about it. I guess I like the piece of music. I like the piece of oh. music really played over and over again. <laughs> I do like, and I know he wasn't the first to do it or anything, but I still, you know, I, I generally speaking, I like playing with like, um, what do you call it? Uh, playing with time chronology flashbacks etc um you know what what tarantino's known for exploiting quite a bit i always enjoy seeing that especially in older movies um Mm -hmm. but you know and you have like multiple time jumps and you have it well once like seems almost unnecessary but i mean of course you have him just waiting at the train station like from the very beginning in penn station Mm. um and that plays throughout but then of course there's when he first goes to her apartment and he puts her to bed and he's like well you know what's going on and she's like well it was an hour ago and it's weird because the flashback is so close in time to where we are (laughs) that like it just leads right up and like as soon as the flashback ends it's like right where we are like it's just i don't know it's kind of strange um but uh there's that and then it's not the same thing but there is the weird reminisce when she starts talking about her mother and her sister, which mm-hmm. kind of reminded me of when I was talking about that scene in Gremlins when uh, Phoebe Cates starts talking <laughs> about her dad, and you're like, what is going on? Like, where is this going? <laughs> See, I was actually thinking of the watch story from Pulp Fiction. And for some reason, I don't know, because me and Sean did this other movie called... Um... <sighs> 
it was something about sons and mothers or something like that. Do you remember that? That we did on a Best Picture podcast? It sounds familiar, but I didn't watch the movie, so I didn't listen to that one. But I do remember. How was that called? Uh, well, if you if you had watched it or if you knew what the story, the plot of the movie was, when she started talking about her father and her mother and her sister, I was almost imagining that movie, Sons and Daughters, or no, it's not Sons and Daughters, Son, something like that. Um, I w- but I was imagining that movie being her flashback that she was talking about because mm. it's a bit of a dysfunctional life growing up. Uh, like, cause she was talking about her parents and this and that. Although hers wasn't that dysfunctional, not, but like the way the movie was that I'm speaking of. Um, but I was just imagine that movie was like her flashback uh, of like her troubled times at home. And so that was a weird detour a little bit. Um, when she started talking about that, and it was she was she was trying to explain why she came to New York, and um, and fun fact, uh, you know, we and while she's just narrating, you know, we just see the ballerina dancing, um, mm-hmm. who's supposed to be her sister. Um, fun fact that was um, Kubrick's wife at the time, and uh, she was also his art director for like. I think Fear and Desire, but for sure this movie. Maybe The Killing also. Oh. Um, so, yeah. Oh, that's cool. There you go. Yeah, yeah indie filmmaking, bringing the family and friends. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and I, I did think that little detour bit, I, I didn't think it added very much. I was like, I feel like this story is maybe supposed to be a little resonant with the rest of the movie, but it just doesn't really connect for me. Or so, maybe, maybe I was missing something. I don't know. But it just felt like an odd little tangent. And I was also thinking, because you were talking about how Kubrick obviously wrote this movie, and then later he would base his works on other things. Um, and it's a little bit weak in the story, to be fair, uh, mm. this one. And I was thinking, I was in my mind earlier, I was like kind of relating it to uh, uh, like Zack Snyder. Because um, it seemed like his be- all his best work was based on something that someone else wrote <laughs> and <laughs> it's the stuff that he wrote himself that wrote and directed that gets a little uh, problematic not in that way but problematic in being wholly good and like a solid piece of work problematic mm. um, the stuff that he wrote himself is kind of like eh. yeah and to be fair i mean he considers both these it's like student films so like I, you know, he probably wrote the script just thinking, what, what am I capable of filming right now with my limited resources? So maybe it was so limited because of that kind of thing, but definitely not a particularly interesting story. <laughs> it's it's all the photography that really sells the movie. But and what do you think about? Because I didn't pick up on this the first time I watched the movie. So our femme fatale, like her vocation, she's a taxi dancer. I had never heard of that until I just read about it before this conversation. Oh, interesting. Did you pick up on what her job was and how it worked, like in the context of the movie? Um, all I got was that he owned some sort of weird dance club where, like, old rich men, I guess, would pay to dance with the ladies and they would like switch off. Right. It, but that's I, I didn't get much more from it than that. It wasn't necessarily rich men, but I you know, I, I just learned this you know just prior to the discussion because I had no idea this was a thing that existed. So 
it was called like taxi dancing um it started in the early 1900s and it was really popular in the 20s and 30s 20s and 30s and by the time of the 50s um it was dying out um and literally in new york times square was one of the last places where it existed but i mean this is the dying days of of the practice or whatever um Hmm. so how it would work is um you go to the dance hall or whatever and uh all the ladies would be there just kind of mingling um and you would purchase a ticket like you buy tickets like at the fair you know to buy like to play games and you know get refreshments or whatever like at a traditional carnival or whatever um Mm -hmm. so you buy tickets and um when one of the the girls becomes available you ask you ask them for a dance and they'll dance with you and you give them the ticket or whatever um and they'll dance with you for one song and then that's it and then you know you use your tickets on other girls or whatever you want to do um so then at the end of the night, the girls get a commission on however many tickets they earn. So that's it. It's just for like single guys to have dance partners. Um, except, so we're seeing the dying days of it. So it looks like a weird POS, a little bit seedy <laughs> kind of place, like a sad kind of place. But apparently in the 20s and 30s, 20s and 30s, uh, generally like they were like they were nice like they were like nice looking places to go like you know not seedy all you know they were just like legitimate i guess is um, what i'm trying to say however people did have moral issues with them from the beginning um for sure well of course (laughs) yeah yeah and maybe one of the reasons i was saying crime boss stories i i don't know i got the sense that Maybe if these guys slipped this guy some money, he could force these girls into uh, doing other stuff. There was something just about the way he was treating her that made him seem like... Of course. But he's like a... Because he is essentially like a pimp, but he's he's like a more legitimate pimp, in a mm. way. Like, more legitimate business than straight-up pimping. Yeah, and then he's got his little, his little murder goons over there. <laughs> <laughs> yes. I love that little bullshit line, too. He's like, oh, it's all gone so bad. Like, I didn't mean to... Didn't plan to kill him. It's like, oh, sure you didn't. I mean, come on. I mean, what else were they going to do there? I don't know. <laughs> Some of that stuff, I, I, I was a little confused. But. It's so funny to have like the guy who's like the crime boss or whatever you want to call him. And again, how the femme fatale can just disarm anybody. And how she just makes him into such a sack. Like an empty sack is what I mean. Um, and it's funny because... Uh, it... it I mean, obviously, art reflects life. Uh, I mean, obviously, no one knows anybody who I work with. and So at, at work today, uh, somebody was talking about the guy that they're seeing on the side. And it, it's a similar situation because without me identifying anyone, not that anybody would know anyway, the guy in question is a real rugged alpha male type older guy not a kid you know he's he's a very rugged alpha male older man but she's a lot younger and she was just talking about how like why is he so needy and why does he need me to call him and why does he why is he so insecure and and why is he like what are you doing and 
and checking on me. And it, and see, it sounds like such a, what's the term for that now? What do they call him? A simp these days? Like Lolita, the professor in Lolita. Yeah. She's, she's describing as him as such a simp, but this guy is truly like a burly man. I mean, a tough guy. And so this is like a femme fatale, like in real life, because he's he's a real tough alpha male who could kick all our asses like hand to hand. But when it comes to his being attached to this random female, it just it just breaks him down completely, just like these characters. It's, it's I don't know, feminine wiles. Oh, and I guess just briefly, even though yeah, we've we've kind of exhausted the movie. There is that little bit at the end where she, you know, to kind of save her own skin, she's like, I don't care about that guy. Do whatever you want with him. I'll just be with you and just spare my life. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then we get that happy ending. I don't, I mean, I know the studio kind of forced that on him. Yeah. But, uh, you know, it's another kind of lame note for the movie, I thought. <laughs> I'm curious how it's supposed to go. So it was like he's supposed to save her and then she just doesn't show up? Like what was supposed to be the original unhappy ending uh he didn't say i got the sense that maybe that whole train sequence and kind of the wraparound bit of it was maybe added post that kind of uh getting that extra bit of money so it may have just ended with him escaping that's just my theorizing i i didn't read anything about that but <laughs> perhaps but i i kind of liked it i mean it's kind of like a, oh my god how could she like just go back but i and to me it, it to me it reflects real life in the sense that or realism in the sense that i i completely understand when you feel like you're in a position that literally your life is at stake and realistically some people do whatever it takes if they think their life is like really on the line so to anyone who poo-poos it like oh how could she turn on him so quick no she's just trying to stay alive and it makes sense yeah i mean in her eyes they're both dead I mean, what's going to save him? Probably nothing. Might as well save herself. So, <laughs> no, yeah, I don't judge her for it. It's kind of rude that she didn't leave any note at the police station. <laughs> yes. I was like, oh, okay. <laughs> and of course, she has to show up late, like when his, the train is about <laughs> to show up. But that's to get a little bit extra money. <laughs> bring her in. Oh, and I was saying earlier, and I got distracted because I was talking about how she looks like the, the Kubrickian female type. Um, so I thought she was quite the looker at first. Um, and I thought, man, he knows how to cast them. But I don't know what she really spoke like in real life, although she did become like a CNN news anchor later in life. But um, she, uh, it, I don't know if it's how she spoke, but there's there's the poor ADR, and it does not work for her. It, it takes her down several pegs, the poor She has a very clunky voice that does not match her image and it, it, it very much detracts in my mind um, yeah and a couple scenes like that scene where she's giving her little backstory they're like talking so low and it's just like like almost monotone deliveries i was like oh wow and i was reading a little bit of like i read a quote from kubrick where people were like oh like why are you letting these actors like get away with some of the stuff you are and he was like, I'm the only one that's getting anything out of this movie, so I'm just trying to you know, keep everyone happy just to get it finished. So maybe that's why some of that stuff. <laughs> yeah, some of this poor ADR and some of this poor acting. 
Just think of Jake Lloyd and Phantom Menace. That's what I mean. Oh, I'll be thinking about him soon, next week. <laughs> yeah, kind of stilts it. Holding off for now. Yeah. So. Oh, but final thoughts, I guess. No, it's just cool to see the 50s. Mm-hmm. And because it's shot in such a way, like on, uh, what do you call it? Um, on location? Um, oh, that's the one more important thing to mention. Because it is shot the way it's shot, very on location, in the moment, just using what you got. Um, it does, in a way, um, uh, what do you call it? Uh, foreshadow, foreshadow, maybe? Um, the French New Wave later, or at least the Godard movie. Uh, I think it's Godard. Um, Breathless. Hmm. Still never seen it. Because that's what I found that made Breathless so unique is that it just feels like it's just shot in the moment on the streets in, I think they're in Paris. And it's just, here we are and let's have a camera, which also reminds me of, for those who know, like city of death, classic Dr. Who, like that's how I felt about breathless. It's like, Hey, we're on the streets of Paris. Let's just grab a 16 millimeter camera and go with it. And you know what I mean? Like you very much had to feel that because I think it's true. Like all the people on, on the streets are just actual passerby or they don't know what's going on they don't know a movie's being made they're just mm-hmm. there <laughs> and so that's kind of the feel you get from that breathless movie um and i guess the french noir because i haven't or not french noir um french new wave um but i haven't seen a lot of french new wave so i don't really know if but so this movie has a weird sense of being pre french new wave because the way it was made <laughs> Um, no, seriously, watch Breathless and watch. You, you, there's a lot of parallels, except Breathless has a more interesting story. But there's a lot of similarities uh, to this movie and that movie. But just on the just on the bit about the guerrilla filmmaking, I feel like that always happens with that kind of yeah guerrilla style. It's like creating a little snapshot of just people's lives at that moment. Yeah, because yeah, people are just walking around, getting their groceries, walking somewhere, and like when I was watching Duel the other day, there's all these scenes of them like ripping around. And you just see people like look like onlookers because they're like, oh, what's going on? People are filming a movie. I'm always like, oh, I wonder if they even realize that this is the picture they're in all these years yeah. later. <laughs> and famously, it's insane to think about. But if you watch the car chase in French Connection, famously, they had no permits for making a movie. Um, they do this crazy, iconic car chase through New York. And the other cars are regular cars on the street. Oh, no. They're not stunt drivers. They're not stunt drivers. They do this crazy car chase in New York traffic amongst real drivers. That's insane. And they even crash into one of the cars, which was not planned. (laughs) So, like, what the fuck? (laughs) That's insane. Um, That's Friedkin, right? William Friedkin. That guy's a lunatic. Dude, you gotta watch it. It's unbelievable. You can't believe that they did that, like, without a permit, without without, you know, all the things that go into that in like in a normal movie, like for safety reasons. It's completely insane. Yeah, this is the same guy who'd uh, fire off live rounds on set to get reactions from his actors. Complete oh, lunatic. Man. <laughs> it's <laughs> it's something else. It's method. Um but I like seeing the fifties done in a non-traditional studio theatrical kind of way because you really get the realism like 
again, because they're real people on the street, they're wearing their real clothes, you know, they're not wearing costumes, and you just really get a sense of what it was really like, as opposed to, not that there's anything wrong with it, but, but when you watch, like, the movie Guys and Dolls, you know, it, there's no realism, and I like Guys and Dolls, by the way, but I'm just saying, it, that's, like, the complete antithesis of this, and it's also interesting because we do see the, um, the failing, or not the failing, but the declining taxi dancer hall and how, ugh, like, you just think, God, you don't want to go there. Like, um, you see, those places don't exist anymore. Now, nowadays, those are the seedy parts of the internet um, where losers go to hang out. But, like, Reddit and stuff and certain Discord channels I follow. Um, but... Or camming. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or uh, Omegle, but um, but it's it's weird to see this because it's obviously fifty five, and then again, if you've seen the um, and I know it's not a documentary or anything, but uh, last night in Soho, the damn swinging sixties in London, Jesus, it seems like well, this is so ugh, it's so yucky seeing fifty five times nineteen fifty five Times Square versus um, what we see in, in the Soho District of London in that movie in the swinging 60s. And even though it's, it's a similar type business, business like um, pseudo-brothel, uh, it, it still comes across, comes across as so much classier. Um, but anyway. Oh, did you want to rate the movie? I'm not sure if we were doing that for these, but... Sure, why not? Uh, uh, how many out of um, dangling hands above our lead's head? Sure. During the old uh, mannequin bit. Honestly, I'm going to give it a solid... I'm, I'm fine giving it three uh, dangling hands. And I know, of course, it's weighted because I'm such a Kubrick fanboy. I, I, I completely grant if you're not a Kubrick fanboy, you want to rate it lower, whoever you are. But uh, I'm, look, oh, I'm looking at the dangling hands. There was actually four on screen, but I'm going with three. <laughs> yeah, for me, I'll give it a 2.5. I really do think um, it's just too fleet. There's not enough time to really develop an interesting story or interesting characters. Um, I love the snapshot in time element. I think that's super cool. Um, and some great photography. But yeah, the the whole ADR thing creates like a distancing effect, I feel, from the performances and not particularly interesting writing. So it's more fun to look at all the stuff that would get carried on into other movies. Like when you're yeah. talking about the whole uh, Kubrick kind of playing with time, that just feels like him kind of developing the ideas for the killing. So it's all over that movie, and yeah, and it's, so it's it's fun as a little piece of his film film history. But as a movie on its own, it's uh, it's kind of a middling flick, held up by great visuals. Here's a, a weird oblique thought that won't mean much to many people, but I just had. But so there's because I grew up in the days of free TV. Uh, broadcast television and there was certain movies that they would bring out two or three times a year the same movie that they would show on free tv and and there's so there's certain movies i grew up with like that on free television where i've seen them multiple times because they would be regularly repeated on free television and they weren't necessarily great movies but you would just see them and you'd be like yeah i'll watch this again i'll watch this again 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 and, and so there's certain movies that 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 became part of my i don't know like i don't know what do you call that i mean 
they get this weird nostalgia um, bump, but it's just because it was on free TV repeatedly uh, for no good reason sometimes. And if such a thing existed, and those movies were always like five, ten years old at the time. Uh, so if such a thing, and I know such, something similar did exist, but so this movie is 55. So let's say I was some kid growing up in the 60s watching free TV. And if for some reason this movie would just come on all the time, you know, like, oh, look, they're playing Killer's Kiss again. I could just see being like, oh, yeah, I'm into this. I can just watch this again and again on free TV. And then I could see this becoming, like, part of that, like, it's just one of those movies you saw a hundred times. And so now you have a thing for it. Um, I'm trying to think of some of those right now. Um, Bloodsport was one that they would show all the time on free TV. And that's kind of a cult classic now. But still, it's like, oh, look, Bloodsport's on again. Let's watch it. They did it with all the Bond movies. Um, back in the day, um, well, not all of them, but most of them, uh, they did it with. Um, there's this movie, called, and I've been wanting to find it on disc, but it seems like almost impossible. It was called Electric Dreams, and it was from the early mid '80s. Oh, you know that movie? I've never seen it, but I've wanted to see it. I think it's considered a cult classic now. But if, man, they showed it all the time on free TV. It's like, oh look, Electric Dreams is on again. And it just it's not a good movie. Again, it's it's like a, a cult classic, I guess. But I don't know if you know it's about a guy who has like an eighties computer and I think he spills coffee on it or something. And he becomes sentient. And then he has like this major crush on this girl who's like a celloist, like in the local symphony or something. And his new AI friend is like gonna like help him get the girl. But it's not a comedy. It's not a comedy. It's like a weird, um, what do you call it? Uh, uh, drama? Melodrama? <laughs> and then, of course, like Hal, um, the, the AI takes a turn. Um, you know, and becomes the protagonist. I, I just love all that. I love all that weird 80s shit with computers or AI or robots. For whatever reason, that just really tickles me, so I always try to see those films. It's nuts. Electric Dreams <laughs> is nuts. Oh, Once Bitten with Jim Carrey, that was another one that made the rounds. Oh, yeah, all the time. On the free TV. The Death Witch movies, I feel like those came on all the time, but they're always censored, so I never realized how horrific they actually are. <laughs> but I used to see those all the time as a kid on TV. Um, Friday the 13th. Two, three. Yeah, the Halloween uh, sequel. Nightmare on Elm Street. Nightmare on Elm Street Part Two, part specifically Part Two. <laughs> I've seen that one so many times, and not and never so many times the other sequels or the original. But Part Two, yeah. they would show that one over and over and over again. It's crazy. Yeah, it sounds like Halloween Four and Five for me. I feel like those were just those were the ones I saw the uh, most. Oh, Halloween Two. Halloween 2 and Halloween 3, all the time, over and over. Star Trek 2, over and over. Not that we're complaining, but over and over. And, um, oh, I had another one just now. Uh, Halloween, Friday 13, Nightmare on Elm Street. Oh, shit, another one. Uh, I don't know. Oh, damn, whatever. Yeah, I feel like the first Terminator was on all the time, too. Oh, first Terminator, first Terminator. Yep, 
That was a good one. That was one of the best, actually. So I realized that the boobs were there. Didn't realize about the boobs till I bought the DVD. I was like, oh, okay, I missed this this one. Yeah, hmm. Sean was was it Sean recently <laughs> who didn't, didn't know about the boobs in that movie? I, I can still hear the music like during the, the sex scene. <laughs> da, 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 you can see the, the squiggly lines of the VHS da, da, from all the rewinding. Da, 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 da. <laughs> um, but yeah. Oh, Psycho, Psycho two and three. Those are some other ones. <laughs> On heavy repeat. No, oh, but just to just to round out the killer's kiss, there's one other thing I wanted to mention. Just uh-huh. as kind of a final note. That's a little bit odd, and you may not feel this, but some of the scenes with Davy and uh, Gloria in, in her apartment were making me think of like independent movies from the '90s. Just the way it was like the kind of kind of basic ways ways that the camera was framed and the way that they looked, and kind of like the more shitty quality of the dvd that i had just reminded me a lot of like weird indie flicks from the 90s that i watched but again i don't know if you feel that but... can you give an example of one i mean i i know i kind of know the movies but can you think of an example of one or two of those 90s movies um pie a little bit of pie comes to mind maybe that's just because of black and white but oh I... just like the sparse kind of apartment set and um i've only seen that like once or something yeah, what are some other ones? I don't, I don't go back to those movies anymore, so they kind of... A lot of them kind of left my brain. But but for whatever reason, it just made me think of that. I, I, don't, I don't even know why, but... Like, I kind of know what you're talking about, but I I wanted to, like, focus in on something specific, at least in my mind, to really visualize it. Yeah, I used to be super into those 90s independent films, but I just completely soured on them, and I, I have, like, a negative view of them now. <laughs> even though I haven't gone back to them in so long. Kind of like a... One of the greatest gritty apartments akin to this boxer, but just so much better with more character is um, is Rocky's apartment in the original Rocky. That is a fucking <laughs> classic. I mean, gritty apartment, like, just, oof. Like, man. Man, that that's... You gotta check that one out if you've never seen it. I'm speaking to the listeners. That's a good one. <laughs> yeah, and the movie itself is a good one, so definitely check that one out hell yeah <laughs> hell yeah but uh thanks a lot for coming on this one i can't wait to talk about the killing whenever we get to that one it's just gonna get better i mean the more we do these it's just gonna get better yeah yeah and i guess you actually did a couple of these on the uh best picture podcast kind of forgot about that yeah we had to they came up yeah, yeah. uh clockwork orange and barry linden yeah there you go mm-hmm. but anyway yeah like yeah peace
Yeah, here we are, continuing our Kubrick... No, not Kubrick. Think... Here we are, continuing our Kubrick series. <laughs> Go ahead. No, I think some people pronounce it that way, and I'm still never sure what the correct way yeah, is supposed it... to be. I used to always say Kubrick, but I'm pretty sure it is Kubrick. But, but either way, yeah, here we are. Damn it, I'm looking for the damn movie, but everyone keeps saying... There's some crazy scene in one of the Amityville movies that involves a garbage disposal. So that's what all the results keep coming up as, even though that's not what I'm looking for. Yeah, that, that, that does sound familiar, that Amityville bit, but oh boy. It's, movies. I want to say the word thunder is in the movie title. Um, Rolling Thunder? That might be it. Let me look that up. Might be that. Mm, that sounds familiar. God, it's weird to try to pull something out of your deep memory damn this looks grim that was from the late 70s yep rolling thunder 1977 i feel like that's a movie i need to revisit someday because it's like a very hard gritty adult type movie drama and i saw it as a kid and i just remember obviously the garbage disposal scene uh <laughs> but i feel like if i go back i'll find it a very interesting movie at, like if i watch it with adult eyes oh wow yeah, Rolling Thunder. Written by Paul Schrader. <laughs> it's an AIP film. Oh, man. <laughs> uh, remember old Paul Schrader from uh, uh, Dominion? Prequel to The Exorcist? <laughs> ah. Nice. But yeah, the, I, I'm sure it's on YouTube. Just the, the garbage disposal scene. So if you just want to <laughs> go straight to that. I should add this to my list of... Uh... Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And that movie made me... Seeing this movie as a kid made me a little bit afraid of garbage disposals like the whole rest of my life. <laughs> That's fair. <laughs> yeah, there was an episode of Supernatural that opened up with a pretty grotesque uh, garbage disposal scene, and that definitely put me off them too. <laughs> but... 